And let's give our attention to Brother Nate. Good morning. I want to greet each one of you in the precious name of Jesus. It's good to have you here. Trust you feel at home with us. We worship here together. Happy Father's Day to uh, every father here with me. I am um, blessed to have a day, to have a day when my girls and children bring me cards of, of appreciation. It does mean a lot to... to um, realize that you're appreciated and blessed and I trust each of you fathers can experience that. I um, had the message that I'm planning to bring on my mind for some time as it was a request that I need to be sharing um, this July at the Berean meetings and so I was going to share it and I studied it and I had my notes ready and last evening we were discussing it and I realized it's Father's Day today. <laughs> This is not a Father's Day message. I thought about, well, maybe I should switch it. And as I looked at the message, I believe there is a lot of message here for the fathers. Um, I felt it does go together. I'll let you decide that as you listen. The title of the message is The Offensive Power of the Church. Not on, well, they gave me that title, and as soon as you hear the offensive, it's like, is it offending you? But I think what they were requesting is like on the offense power, the, 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 the church's liberty or authority to be on the offense, the offensive power of the church. And the text is the verse of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and I'll read that. You can turn that will be our text in Matthew 16. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> By doing a study on the verses from uh, verse 13 through 19, looking at what the foundation of the church is and the authority of the church I'm going to read the verses 13 through 19 at this time. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven." We have a setting here, the town of Caesarea Philippi, which is way northernmost region of Palestine, 120 miles north of Jerusalem, at the foot of Mount Hermon, at the headwaters of the Jordan River. I think there's a place actually where this is where the Jordan River start. It is a beautiful setting. 
it appears that Jesus was alone with his disciples. So we think of a, a reprieve. He's coming um, right out of, of the feeding the 4,000, I believe is right below before this, uh, right out of a different, uh, busy time serving, uh, interacting with the Pharisees, just all kinds of things happening. We see this, possibly this alone time. And he takes this time to ask these questions. And if we notice when Jesus asks a question, he's usually going somewhere with it. We don't, I don't believe Jesus is here. You know, I really wonder what men think about me. Maybe my disciples know. No, Jesus knew men what was in their hearts. He was asking this question to pull something out of the disciples, I believe. <clears throat> so who do others say Jesus is? Well, and he asked the disciples that. Who do, you, who do they think Jesus is? And they have a list. They say, well, John the Baptist, who had been beheaded. Maybe he was kind of brought back to life in the form of Jesus. Or, or Elijah or, or Elisha, the, the prophets, Jeremiah. So kind of all these, these men. And you kind of think about why they may have said that. We think of the, the baptismal ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus and the disciples baptized some similarities there. I was just reading through the stories of Elijah and Elisha and the miracles they perform. Think about what, what they did. They healed leprosy. They raised a child from the dead. There was a multiplying of food. So there was um, these Old Testament prophets. Jesus was doing some of the things they did. So I'm certainly brought that to mind to the Jewish uh, people who knew these stories. Of course, the prophets. Jesus taught. He, he had a a way of teaching that was with authority and it um it kind of spoke to people and they probably thought well, that reminds us of jeremiah or isaiah or whoever that maybe they were thinking of today we can ask the same questions who do people say that jesus is and I did a little research and I uh, looked at the three uh, three major religions first one is muslims who do they say Jesus is? Well, they have a, this is who Jesus is. They believe that there was a Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Muslim faith, he is quite important. He's up there very high. He is um, considered a prophet. He's considered to be born of virgin birth. I didn't realize that until I studied this. Um, he was considered to have performed the miracles, that he had miraculous powers. He is, I understand it right, somewhere he would be coming back to take the place of the fall. I, I didn't study into that much, and it's not our subject this morning. So that, when I listen to what the Muslims believe about Jesus, it's quite a bit. But they strongly deny that he was divine or that he died an atoning death. And right there is the difference. Right there's where we have to separate. They do not believe him in him as the son of God or that he died a death that makes a difference in our lives. Buddhists believe also that Jesus was real, that he existed, that it happened, and that he was a good man, like a perfect man, a model for good Buddhists to follow. So if you could be like a Jesus, you would um, be being a good Buddhist. And if you understand the religion, as you do that good life, and you want to achieve this state of enlightenment. And that Jesus would have been a good model to follow that. 
Hindus in India who worship many gods, they just add Jesus right in there. He's one of, one of the many. And uh, kind of a good symbol of divinity, kind of a good, another good person to do it. None of these holds exclusivity to these religions. They do not look at Jesus as the only way or the only one, or even as a savior, but they acknowledge that he was real. Then he cuts and cuts to the quick. But who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? And this is the all-important question that everyone must answer. We don't need to, it's interesting to know what other people think. It's educational. But what's going to be life-changing is what you say about Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? Simon Peter with I feel quickness and confidence answered, Thou art the Christ, and conviction, the Son of the living God. That was quite a mouthful. That was quite a statement. That was quite a step from all of these other views. To call Jesus even Moses or Isaiah was quite a compliment as a Jew to equivocate him with that level. But to say that you are God, you are the Savior. You are the promised one. Moves everything to an entirely different level. But this is the foundation of the gospel. Jesus may only hold one place. There is no other way. He... he, he he receives, deserves, demands our complete devotion. He's not almost, he's not just a good man. He was a good man. He is God in flesh, incarnate, come down to provide the way of salvation for you and I. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That statement alone stands far above beyond all religions. To say that that exclusivity, that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life, the only way to peace with God, does not bode well with the way the world thinks and, and things go. But he said it, he meant it, and it is the way it is. And it is where all true followers of Jesus Christ must come to is to receive him not hedgingly, not partially, but completely and wholly as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, incarnate, divine, above all. Jesus follows the statement of Simon Peter with a blessing to him. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Gives him his personal name. He, it blessed Peter when, it blessed Jesus when Peter made a confession that Jesus is Lord. And brothers and sisters, I believe it blesses Jesus today when we say, when we have opportunity to say that Jesus is Lord. I believe in you. 
I believe he's listening and he's hearing and blessed when we're willing to confess him before men. The Bible tells us that, that we should do that. He said, blessed are you. And then he makes a statement. You did not receive this insight from one of the other disciples, from the Pharisees or from a learned man. Only God was the one able to open your spiritual eyes to understand who I am. That insight came from above. My Father, which is in heaven. I want to flip back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 11 and take a little bit of a um, trail uh, away from or down this path that he, he revealed. He said, talking about the need for spiritual insight is if, if we're going to receive Jesus as our Savior, if we're going to follow him, we're going to enter into his kingdom, the process which with that which happens, it, it, it involves God. It involves his drawing. It involves his revealing of his wisdom to us. In uh, verse 25 of chapter 11, it says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it's, so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal to him. Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest into your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We need to, to prepare our hearts to receive truth. And I believe what that involves is, is putting away my wisdom, putting away the world's wisdom, putting away my self-sufficiency, my pride. Come before God and say, God, I want you. I want you to take your word and just open it up to me. I want you to reveal yourself to me. I want you to show yourself to me. And as we open and prepare our hearts before him, he is certainly able to do that as he did with Peter. Moving on, coming into the text, verse, verse 18. I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This verse has been means for much contention in the Christian world. There has been some disagreement with what all this means. I do not want to spend a lot of time on the different disagreements. I'm going to go right into what I believe it means, and if we want to disagree later, we can. First thing we're going to do is look at some of the Greek words here. We're talking about rocks here, and the word for Greek words for rock are brought twice in two different ways. So I did a little bit of Strong's looking, and there was three Greek words. The lethos was, I was confused at first if it was just a small stone but as I looked at it in different verses it seemed like it could be more just like the generic term for different sizes of stones but that is not used here Peter is Petros P-E-T-R-O-S 
And that has um, the idea of, the, of not a complete rock, but the part of a rock, of a large rock, like maybe a cut portion or a chip. Could have been different size. And the last word, and upon this rock, this would be rather a large mass, maybe the side of a cliff, maybe a huge boulder. Now we're looking at not a rock you can move, but rather up in the mountain kind of rocks. Robertson, New Testament word picture said, there's been much contention on this. Don't get too involved with these words and build them too much right off of these Greek words. He said it's a good chance that Peter was talking, no, Jesus was talking to Peter in Aramaic. And if it's, he was said it in Aramaic, there's no such distinction. He said it and, and it made the same thing. What I found is when I, um, I was told that you use context, context, and context, Brother John Wright. And when you look at the context of the New Testament, this section is abundantly clear that indeed Jesus Christ is the rock. He is the cornerstone. And we'll look at some of those verses later. What I want to learn from this verse here is notice how he addresses Peter. He says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Given right directly after Peter makes the confession that he is the Christ. There's two things that, that come out to me is that he dresses Peter. He says, you're Peter. Now we could flip back um, one page in, in chapter 16, verse 23 in my Bible. It says, uh, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense to me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That was Peter. Jesus talking to Peter after Peter rebuked him for wanting to go to the cross or needing to go to the cross. So we understand that Peter was a needy man and we could go and study the life of Peter and realize how needy he was, his denial of Christ. But right here it says, you're Peter. Take that to yourself. He can say, you're Nate. You're, you're Ken. And I have a need for you. I've got a job for you in my church. I've got a job for you in my kingdom. He acknowledges you by name. He has a name for you. In fact, this was his special name for Peter. Peter was Simon Barjona. He says, you're Peter. That's my, my name for you. And I have a purpose in your life. I have a job for you to do. And this confession, this thing you just said, is the foundation of this great work I'm preparing to do in the church of God. The foundation is me, Jesus Christ. And it'll come alive in people like you when you're willing to confess me and to follow me and to give yourself over to me completely. This is the rock that will prevail. We go back to Daniel. Remember, we studied that. And remember the rock that started small and grew to fill the whole earth and came to overcome all of the nations of the world. That is the rock, Jesus Christ and his kingdom that is here and alive today. Got to move on. Chapter, uh, verse 19. Uh, we're, we're end of verse 18. This is the rock that all the powers of hell do not have any power against. 
It is the offensive power. There's authority, there's power in this verse saying that upon this rock, upon this confession, through my power, nothing will stand against it. Nothing will be able to prevail. I will prevail. It is already decided. Verse 19, he continues on and says that the, there's an authority given to the church of making direction, decisions, a heavenly authority. That applies here and forever. When we think about, this is where we've got to go out of this context, and we go into the story of the, of the beginnings of the church and how Jesus Christ took this group of men that he taught, but were pretty weak, motley, and un, un, uneducated, and he filled them with the power of the Holy Spirit, and we had Acts 2, 3, and the rest of the book happened as these men were ignited by the power of God, what did they do? They preached the gospel. Uh, they healed the sick. They formed the new church. They ordained elders. They did the stuff that, that they were supposed to do, not by their own wisdom power. When the Pharisees met them and they were, they were angry at them and they tried to like, argue with them or pin them in a corner, they, were, they marveled at them. Why? Because they recognized these men had been with Jesus that something happened to these men that was unusual. They shook the world. You could say they, uh, they, they did say. Their enemy says these are the men that have turned the world upside down. They've taken everything that's been going on for hundreds and thousands of years and flipped it on its head. The apostles went on and they took up their inkwell and their pen and they started writing. And they wrote the epistles. They wrote the gospels. Not by their own wisdom, but the wisdom of God that filled them. The Holy Spirit that reminded them. That guided them. They worked through the difficulties of the beginnings of the new church. Of the apostasy that was already creeping in. And they took their pen and they preached against it. And it was recorded. And it's here in our Bible today. I believe that is what he's talking about in verse 19. We run the church of God not on something that angels wrote, but something that men wrote, the apostles. Men of God, inspired by God and directed by God. And that authority has been bound in heaven, and it's still bound on earth, and it's still having an impact on my life here today. Today, I still go and say, now what, what would I do for this issue? We still go as brethren in the church and say, okay, we're facing this new issue. Where do we go? Where should we go? We should open our Bibles and we should say, what, what did they do? How could we apply these timeless principles to, to what we're facing here today? So we're taking that power is going on. Well, we'll go ahead into that a little later as I continue. Let's keep moving and think a little bit more about this beating, this building, not a beating, 1 Peter chapter 2. And um, it is described here as a building. It's a beautiful picture. It says, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, this is talking about um, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. 
Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. <clears throat> so we have a picture here of this living house, the church of God, the kingdom of God. And now we pour concrete and lay blocks. I, I imagine, I never laid blocks, but if you lay blocks, you planter, do you have to have a cornerstone? Do you start at a corner and you draw your lines off of that corner? Back in the day when it was stones, they had the cornerstone. They set in place and they had to get that thing set so that the building would go out at 90 degrees according to where they wanted to go. That stone was important. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the beginning of the church, the foundation of the church, the, what it rests upon and what it sets the direction for the whole house that rests above it. The, the apostles are also foundation stones around this. We could go into Revelation and see that. We see that as they're in that, in their teachings and their writings, building the foundation for the church that went in ages past that. <clears throat> But it doesn't stop with Jesus and the apostles, and it includes all believers, all those who look to Jesus as living stones. Now this house is no longer down in the dirt, but it has risen up, and it is becoming a complete house, and you and I fit into there somewhere, becoming a useful part of this living temple to God. I was comforted by that as I, as a father and as a leader in the church. I, I, there, there's just oftentimes you feel overwhelmed. Oftentimes that you realize you're doing something that is far beyond you, far beyond your own abilities. And as I thought about that foundation built not by man, but by God. That building, conceived not by man, but by God. That architect, placing and setting and guiding and directing, God himself, laying up this building. And I thought about myself in that building, resting upon that foundation and realizing that all the pressure I feel around me is all being borne up by Jesus Christ. That I don't have to feel like I weigh. I can go back to chapter Matthew 11, 25. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and find rest. 
and realize it's not about me. I'm just a tiny portion of the whole picture. It's not about me. The, my house was built in 1890. It has a stone foundation. And I wouldn't know how to find the cornerstone if I, I don't, I don't know enough. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm certain it had it. It's there. And if you would go and pull out those foundational stones, suddenly the house would implode and collapse. But there are real big quarried stones underneath my house, and they've been there for 133 years. But that was kind of neat in this analogy. So what difference does it make? I haven't got to the passion of this message, and it's three minutes to 11. Thou art Peter. And as I pondered about the, the way Jesus went about building his church, don't you think it may have been less risky for him to send a platoon of angels down here to start the church? I think so. I wouldn't have started with Peter. Certainly wouldn't have started with Nate or Louis, right? <laughs> when we recognize and realize the fallacy of humans, particularly myself, to think of starting his bride with that seems a little risky. And it was, but it wasn't. God knows what he's doing. And that's the passion I've... The beauty is the foundation of this story. But what I want to bring to us as men and as fathers and as women, that God has a job for us and he has a name for you. Thou art Peter. And I have a purpose for you in my kingdom. And I want to use you in this kingdom. It's not your job. It's not your kingdom. You don't have all the bright ideas. But you have a wee little part that I want you to carry. And I want you to do that faithfully. I just want you to do the next thing. I don't want you to overthink it. I don't want you to get stressed out about it. I don't want you to carry the weight of your sh the world on your shoulders. But I want to use you. If you're willing to be used by me, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to give you the strength that you need to do this task. I'm not going to give you about beyond that. I might only give you this set of abilities. I might make you a, what are we talking about last week? Prophet or, or a teacher or a, a giver of gifts. And I'm going to equip you for the job that I have for you in this kingdom. Don't get envious about your brother's job over here or that. I'm just going to ask you to do that. I might make you the big toe. I might make you the nose. I don't know. But I'm asking you to be a part of this kingdom and I'm going to use you. If you are willing to be used as you surrender your life completely to me. The requirement is simply to be able to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life completely. Last point, the practical work of the church. What are we supposed to be doing? First is to equip and send forth missionaries to spread the gospel, Matthew 28, 18, 20. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power... What else needs to be said, right, Carl? All power. That's right. All power. All of it is given to me. Out of that prerequisite, you go. 
not in your own strength, but in that power. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We can go to Acts 13. The church of Antioch gathered together. They were praying, and the Spirit nudged them, prompted them, revealed to them that they should send Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. That's the work of the church. That ought to be happening today. We ought to be thinking about the Great Commission, not as single people by ourselves only. It is the corporate work of the church, and it's going to be the most powerful when it's done within the context of the church. I think sometimes in today's world, we do the little bit of hero mentality. There's one amazing Christian that goes and does it on. That's not biblical. It is, yes, Paul was out there, Barnabas out there, and that's what you read about. But there was a network behind him. And there should be a network behind every um, servant of the Lord out there today. Second thing is, what is the authority and the job of the church is to set forth standards of practice to take the word of God and apply it to 2023, June, to be exact, June 2023. When we have a good heritage, we are something to be thankful for, but it's not enough. This generation today needs to deal with things that the generation behind us never had to deal with. And the generation today needs to take the off the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles and take the word of God and make it real to the problems we face today. Yes, we should learn, we should apply, and we should use what has been given to us. But we must step forth in boldness and grab a hold of the things that are facing us and say, what do we do about it? What does the word of God have to say about this? How do we deal with the issues that are staring us into the face? Another thing is that we are, as a church, there's an authority there to deal, to govern ourselves. And that's taught in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Godly men must confront sin. First of all, in their own lives, and if need be, in the life of the church, to maintain a pure church. We don't do this on our own. We do it as a brotherhood. We certainly need God's help. But at the end of the day, we must do something. We must do it. Since this is Father's Day, when I think about if we're going to have a, um, a church that is functioning well, it will be filled with fathers who are doing their jobs at home. It's going to be filled with fathers who say, this is what the word of God says. This is what I understand my role. And then you're going to breathe that authority. You're going to breathe that leadership, that love into the life of your family. You're going to see that there's directions. You're going to see danger. You're going to see, uh, give leadership and vision. But you're also going to bring correction and direction into the life of your family. And when a church is filled with fathers that are doing well, the church is going to work well. When church is filled with fathers that don't care about anybody but themselves, Lord, help that ministry. Because it ain't going to work. We need fathers to be leaders in their own home first. And then we can bring it to the next level.
Lord bless you fathers in this tremendous calling and mothers as we work together in, 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 in simply doing what God has called us to do. In conclusion, um, let's think about um, Samson a little bit. Samson was a gifted man with a tremendous job. Before he was born, God told his parents that I have a job and have a way to do it. He needs, he's going to be a Nazarite. He's chosen before he was born. Samson, what do you do with Samson in your mind, right? He doesn't fit very well. Amazing story. But what a mess. Did God make a mistake? He had a godly father. Why didn't God just use his father? Why did he choose Samson? Why did he end up the way we did? Now, take men, take leaders today that are Samson's. Gifted, capable men, leaders who botch it. They don't do well. They don't lead well. They sin. They disobey. Saul, you go on and on. Could God reach down in the beginning of Samson's life, you know, and killed him? Absolutely. In that first battle, could he have withdrawn his power and said, you know, Samson, I know the direction you're going? And had the Philistines slaughter him and that would have been the end of the story? Sure he could have. But he didn't. God rests tremendous responsibility on men. And the work of God prospers or suffers depending on the choices of men. Now the amazing thing about it is that God is able to work his good even when men do not do what they're supposed to do. He is able to bring good out of bad situations, and he does it. We've seen it, both in the Bible and in our lives. But the point I want to make this morning is God is looking for good men, men that are willing to follow him completely, and it's going to make a difference in the church today if we have more men and women who say, you are the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I'm giving my whole life to you. I'm not serving myself. I'm giving myself completely to you. And it will make a difference in this generation. And you, I know you're sitting here. There's men here like that. That God is placing. In fact, I believe it's every one of you. Just the different roles that he'll call you to. If you choose to serve yourself, to live in sin, God will often still use you but it will not be good. He still redeems situations. We look through the history of the church and we understand the church has suffered through many bad leaders, many men who did not allow God to use them as they should have. In fact, if it had been up to men to build the church of Jesus Christ, there would be no church of Jesus Christ today. But it wasn't up to men. 
And because it wasn't up to men, the church prevails to this day and it will prevail into eternity. Because God is the builder. And he will prevail, despite you or I. But the exciting thing is he has planned, he has deemed, he has invited that you and I be a part of it. He's saying, come, I want to use you. Your name is Peter, and I have a job for you. And it's going to be a good job. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity. If you simply just surrender yourself to my leadership, to my authority, and my power, I'll be able to use you in tremendous ways. Shall we stand for a closing prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the word of God, with its authority, with its beauty, and um, of, of the nature of Jesus Christ that we can concede all of our worship to, all authority, all that beauty that, that, that is contained in you. Lord, I give myself to you, and I pray that you would use men and women for you in this generation. Lord, right here in this congregation, I pray you would raise up uh, men and women to fulfill the job that you have for their lives, and you would build your church in this, in this area, in this church, for your honor and glory. Fathers, we gather this afternoon and to fellowship, to visit. I pray you bless that time together. We build each other up. We would exhort one another to stay faithful. Lord, I thank you for the provisions of food and for everyone that brought it. I pray you would bless that to our bodies in Jesus' name. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and ever. Amen.